Good morning, listeners, and I hope today finds you well. My name is Wilson McCoy with the College Hills Church of Christ here in Lebanon, Tennessee, and I hope you're doing well today. I want to say a big thank you for listening in on our weekly radio broadcast and know that this radio broadcast is one of several options that our church currently offers as ways for you to stay engaged with our community of faith and simply as a way for you to be encouraged and enriched in your faith through the week. We have other opportunities that you can find out about by going to collegehills.org. You can learn more about different ministry initiatives we have. You can learn more about our on-campus gatherings on Sunday mornings and on Wednesday evenings. And you can see if it's the kind of place that you would like to come and visit at some point soon. Please know that you are always more than welcome to come and visit us at 1401 Leeville Pike here in Lebanon, Tennessee. We would love to have you join us and be a guest and get to know us a little bit better so that we can get to know you a little bit better as well. We're currently moving through a series where we're focusing on the one another passages that we find throughout Scripture. As we've mentioned before, the call to one another, one another is this big theme that runs throughout the New Testament. And so we're looking at some specific one another passages that were given to the early church that can serve as instruction for us still today. And today we're going to be looking at the theme of encourage one another. And so we're going to be looking at a passage in Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 37. Acts 4, 32 through 37. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon all of them. There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time, Those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much for today. Thank you for the gift of your word and the gift it is to be able to read the testimony and witness of those very first Christians and to listen and learn from them about what it means to be faithful in our time and place. I pray today that you would give me the gift of preaching and teaching and that you would give us all the gift of open hearts that we would hear your voice and be transformed by it more into the image of your Son, Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. I recently read a book that quickly moved to my favorite books of the year, and maybe one of my favorite books of all time. The book was called The Boys in the Boat, Nine Americans and Their Epic Quest for Gold, 
at the 1936 Berlin Olympics. In that book, it tells the story of the University of Washington rowing crew and their journey to represent the United States at the 1936 Olympic Games in Berlin. The book weaves together both the story of the nine young men and how each of them emerged through the difficulties of the Great Depression, and it tells the story of Hitler and how this particular game was another chance for him to exhibit his tyrannical power. The author beautifully describes how these men pulled together for a common purpose and goal while doing so under the shadow of this evil empire. I don't know anything about rowing. At least I didn't know anything about rowing before I read the book. But simply reading about this sport created an interest and an appreciation for the amazing physical abilities that an individual has to have to participate in that sport. I also grew in appreciation for how these individuals must relate to each other if they truly desire to be a successful crew. One of my favorite passages where the author describes what it takes to be a good crew says this, and I quote, If they are to row well together, each of the oarsmen must adjust to the needs and capabilities of the other. Each must be prepared to compromise something in the way of optimizing his stroke for the overall benefit of the boat. The shorter-armed man reaching a little farther. The longer-armed man foreshortening his reach just a bit so that both men's oars remain parallel and both blades enter and exit the water at exactly the same moment. This highly refined coordination and cooperation must be multiplied out across eight individuals of varying statures and physiques to make the most of each individual's strengths. Good crews are good blends of personalities, some to lead the charge, someone to hold something in reserve, someone to pick a fight, someone to make peace, someone to think things through, someone to charge ahead without thinking. Somehow all this must mesh. That's the steepest challenge. Even after the right mixture is found, each man or woman in the boat must recognize his or her place in the fabric of the crew. Accept it and accept the others as they are. It's an exquisite thing when it all comes together in just the right way. End quote. I loved that book, and I couldn't help but think of passages like that one when thinking about the church. I kept thinking about how this very group of individuals back in 1936 were brought together, who had no say in who else would be in the boat with them, but they were placed there together to be a particular kind of community with a common purpose while evil was swirling all around them. This community, this team, worked together towards a common purpose and goal. This community and team became a community and team because they were trying to achieve something beautiful together. 
And the reason why I like this particular passage that I just read was because it was this good glimpse into what a team really is and what the church really is. A good blend of personalities with all different types coming together, pursuing a common goal together. One of the things that this book reminded me as I was thinking about this team and how this team can give example and instruction to what it means to be the church is a reminder that when it comes to our communities of faith, we need many different parts to the body. We need a diversity of personalities and giftings and individuals who can help make the whole even greater than the sum of its parts. That the parts are important because they contribute something to the larger body and the other parts of the body are enriched because of this different kind of person in their midst. And there's something beautiful when that comes together with a team and there's something beautiful when that happens as well with the church. It's with that reality of diversity in mind that I picked our passage for this morning in Acts chapter 4. Because Acts chapter 4 gives this glimpse of the church at its best. But also, while it gives a glimpse of the church at its best, it also highlights a particular personality that will inevitably shape the rest of the movement of the early church. In our passage today, we read about this moment where all the believers are together with one heart and mind. And the way that Luke tells us that they're one, that they're together, is that they shared their possessions. They made sure that the people in their community had no needs unmet. And so, part of the way that they would accomplish this is that people who had things that they owned, land or houses, would sell them and then bring the money to the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to those who had need in their community. And it was this powerful moment for the apostles. It was this powerful testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. It was a moment of grace for the church. And there's this one particular personality that is highlighted, this one particular person who takes a front stage role, so to speak, in what happens in this moment. There's this guy named Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus. But the apostles don't call him Joseph. They call him Barnabas. And the reason why they call him Barnabas, it's kind of a nickname, so to speak, because he is a son of encouragement. And he's highlighted here as someone who sells a field that he owned and brings the money to the apostles' feet. There is this unity, there's this large thing that the church is doing together as a kind of team. And here, this one person, Joseph, also known as Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, gets highlighted as someone who is demonstrating the grace of God in a particular way. 
He is demonstrating the grace of God in his generosity. He is demonstrating the grace of God in the way that he is an encourager. Now, if you've grown up in church, then you've probably heard of Barnabas. You know that his name means son of encouragement. And if you had never heard of him before, now you do. Now you know that Barnabas is this significant person in the life of the early church and that he was a son of encouragement. What's significant about his role and the meaning behind his name is that this priority on encouraging is going to become a critical and important piece to the life of the early church. That this idea of encouraging one another is going to be one of those significant and repeated one another statements that happens time and time again in the life of the early church. For example, in 1 Thessalonians 5.11, we read these instructions. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. I love this particular verse because it gives us insight into what it means to encourage someone. That what it means to encourage someone is to build another person up. That's really what Barnabas is doing in his generosity of finances, right? He's building up someone who was in a low spot because of a need. He was giving money as a way to build up the church. And in that sense, he is being an encouragement because he is building up something that needed to be built up. And that's really one of the main things that happens when we get encouraged or we are an encourager. We are lifting someone up, someone who is down and out, discouraged or depressed, Through our encouragement, we help lift them up. And that's one way to think about what happens when we encourage. We are taking someone who's down, and we are trying to lift them up. Maybe a lifting up through a financial gift or a lifting up through our words. But there's another way to think about the dynamic of encouragement that's also very powerful. If you think about the word encouragement, you can kind of hear these two different words. In courage. In courage. This word courage comes from this old Latin word meaning heart. And I also kind of think one of the things that's happening when we encourage someone is we are putting something into their heart. We are investing something in them and The heart, as this source of life, is this moment where when we encourage someone, we are giving them heart. We are giving them life. And whether or not you're more drawn to that first image, the idea of lifting someone up or building someone up, or if you are drawn to that second idea of investing something in someone, giving them life, giving them heart, Both of these dynamics show the power of having a person like Barnabas 
in the life of your community. To have a son of encouragement, to have an encourager in your midst, in the midst of the community of faith, is a significant and special and important role. A role that really all of us are called to embody, but Barnabas. Barnabas becomes one key prime example to remind us of how important it is for the life of a community to have encouragers and for all of us to play this part at some point. Because all of us at some point are called to encourage one another. I don't think we can underestimate how important this dynamic is for the life of a community, the life of these living relationships existing together. This past week, I was rereading an article that I read many years ago from the research of a guy named Dr. John Gottman. Now, Dr. John Gottman is a relationship researcher. He's focused on all different kinds of relationships, but one of the relationships that he's done significant research on is the relationship of marriage. And one of his early discoveries several decades ago was the discovery of what he called the magic ratio of relationships. The magic relationship ratio grew out of a study that Dr. Gottman and another doctor did starting back in the 1970s. Uh, They did this longitudinal study of couples and they asked couples to solve a conflict in their relationship in 15 minutes, and then they would sit back and watch. They watched couple after couple solve a conflict in 15 minutes over and over and over again. Now, after carefully reviewing the tapes and following up with those couples nine years later, they were able to predict which couples would stay together and which would divorce with over 90% accuracy. I want to say that again. After carefully reviewing the tapes and following up with these couples, nine years later, they were able to predict which couples would stay together and which would divorce with over 90% accuracy. And the thing that they discovered, the difference in these couples who stayed together and who didn't, was very simple. The difference between happy and unhappy couples is the balance between positive and negative interactions during conflict. This gets at the magic ratio, specifically the magic ratio of 5 to 1. What that means is, is that in a conflict, for every negative interaction, a couple who is stable, a couple who's happy, will have five or more positive interactions. Dr. Gottman says this. He says, When the masters of marriage are talking about something important, they may be arguing, but they are also laughing and teasing, and there are signs of affection because they have made emotional connections. End quote. In other words, as they watched all of these different couples in these intense conflicts and arguments, they noticed that the couples who were thriving, who stayed together, within those conflicts still found ways to have 
positive interactions on a scale of five to one. Now, the unhappy couples, the couples who ended up not staying together, they tended to engage in fewer positive interactions, which, as you probably know, only increased negativity between them. That those couples who did not do well, who did not thrive in the long run, had this lower ratio of positive to negative interactions. I kept thinking about that ratio as I thought about this theme and topic and instruction to the early church of encouraging one another. And I couldn't help but think, how would a community of faith be different if we operated by that same ratio? Meaning, what if we decided to exist as a community together on a ratio of five to one positive to negative interactions? What if we took out all of the issues of conflict and we just treated it as a neutral principle for us? How different would our communities of faith be if we made it a point to have five positive interactions with those in our community of faith for every one negative interaction. Now, when Gottman talks about positive interactions, he has a variety of things that that can include. Things like being interested. Things like expressing affection. Things like intentional appreciation. Encouragement is also a positive interaction. What would it look like in our communities of faith, and how different would they be if we said we are going to make sure that before we say negative things to each other, critical things to each other, have difficult conflict with each other, we're going to lay a foundation of encouragement five to one. Can you imagine? Can you imagine how different our communities of faith would be. Can you imagine how different our interactions with one another would be? I think this is a difficult thing for us to embrace in our churches today. I think that we have a lot of resistance, a lot of things that are impediments to encouragement, so to speak, that can sometimes stand in the way of us cultivating this vibrant community of encouragement. I just want to name a couple for you to consider that may be things that can sometimes stand in your way. I think for a lot of us, the thing that stands in front of us encouraging those in our community of faith is an issue of competition. And what I mean by that is with the abundance of social media and being able to see what other people are doing, with that whole keeping up with the Joneses mentality, so to speak, that often what can happen in our lives and in our lives of faith, in our communities, in our communities of faith, is that we can subtly get this competitive spirit towards other people around us. That we're afraid to offer too many encouraging words, too many compliments, because we feel competition with other people around us. We want them to do well, but not too well. (laughs) We want them to thrive, but not too much. And so we might hold back on our encouragement in order 
for us to feel better about ourselves or whatever the reason is that we're holding that encouragement back. And what's really unfortunate about this competitive mentality is that it operates on a scarcity mentality. That we don't think that there is enough encouragement to go around. That we think that if we give away encouragement, then we won't receive encouragement. But to have a true encouraging spirit is to operate from a posture of abundance. Knowing that there is more than enough encouragement to go around. I think for some of us, the thing that's standing in our way of encouraging others is a critical spirit that for a lot of us, it is so easy to have a spirit of criticism and picking apart and cutting others down who we, for whatever reason, feel like that's our best default. But more often than not, when that's our default, it's really serving as a kind of defense mechanism that we are, for some reason, not willing to encourage others, but we're more prone to cut them down. And what I've observed is this often happens most frequently when someone is doing really well, when things are going well for someone who may have plenty of encouragement in their life. We can sometimes be tempted to cut them back or critique them as a kind of way to to try to even the playing field, so to speak, or whatever is going on deep within our hearts as to why we're critiquing them as opposed to encouraging them. Both of those temptations, whether it's a competitive spirit or a critical spirit, fight against us having an encouraging spirit. And the reason why I think it's such a big deal for us to pay attention to what stands in our way and to work towards cultivating a spirit of encouragement is because it impacts the spirit of our whole community. That when a community gets dominated by critical and competitive spirits, that takes over the life of a community of faith. But to have an encouraging spirit is to have the same impact on a community of faith that Barnabas had on that first community of faith. Because Acts 4 is not the last time that Barnabas is going to get mentioned. Barnabas becomes a central player in the life of the early church. In the conversion of Saul and having him fully incorporated into the people of God. In Acts 11, when he is sent to go check out this new church in Antioch where he sees the grace of God. How could he see the grace of God? Because he knew the grace of God and how he lived. Here is this man who, because of his encouragement, became this central key player in the life of the early church. And his spirit of encouragement, his spirit of grace, allowed him to be this transformative force in the life of his community of faith and these other communities of faith. If You want to be a person who makes a difference. If you want to be the kind of teammate who changes the dynamic of a team, if you want to be the kind of follower of Jesus who can really change a community, be an encourager. Have an encouraging 
spirit, encouragement is contagious. Encouragement can change a person's heart. It can build them up. It can instill in them life and heart, and it can lift them up when a person is at their bottom. Because here's the deal. Everybody has had a hard couple of years. It's been a challenging couple of years. And even people who may seem fine, deep in the recesses of their heart, there's probably some discouragement. There's probably those hard days that they barely get through. And so every day is a good day to encourage someone. You can change someone's day, someone's outlook, and maybe someone's life with that simple willingness to be an encourager. Send a note, make a call, send a text, speak affirmation, speak appreciation. Let the people around you know that you are grateful for them. That's how you make a difference. That's how you show the love of Jesus. That's how you become like a Barnabas, a person of grace, a person of kindness, a person of generosity. Let's be those kinds of people to each other so that we can be those kinds of people to the world. Amen.